Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. One of the forefathers of modern French electronic music, Laurent Garnier grew up fascinated by American black music culture. Lucky enough to have an older brother who would sneak him into nightclubs, Garnier caught the disco bug. From there, he moved to Manchester and fell under the spell of house music at the famed Hacienda nightclub. If Mike Pickering's Friday nights at the Hacienda were a baptism, hearing Farley Jackmaster Funk for the first time was a legitimate miracle, and Garnier came away from the club a true zealot of house. It was at the Hacienda that Garnier first began to DJ in earnest, eventually leading to a well-earned reputation for eclectic marathon sets, as well as establishing himself as a producer and A&R in his role at F Communications. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2015 Red Bull Music Academy in Paris, Garnier discussed everything from approaching techno like a jazz musician to the role of radio in his early musical discoveries. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please help me welcome Mr. Laurent Garnier. Bonjour. Bonjour. I guess that was an appropriate hello. Yeah. Yes. The singers are on home soil. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to start at the very beginning. Not everywhere about dance music starts in the club. So... If I walked into the childhood bedroom of Mr. Laurent Garnier, what would I have seen? <laughs> Decks, but not these ones. You had to, you know, do the speed with your finger because there was no speed control. Um, very old mixer, which was in mono because there wasn't that, that many mixes and stuff. And I had to had no money, so I had to find a way to get something to mix records. Um, it was some kind of a small club. <laughs> it had like a you know disco ball and a strobe, and I was obsessed with the nightlife and obsessed with the the club life actually, and club music. So since I was like twelve or thirteen, I had the the neighbors. I was inviting the neighbors to come and dance on my private dance floor, which was no more than three or four people, but um. Yeah, that was my that was my thing. My friends were playing football. I was mixing rec, trying to mix records. It was very hard, you know, without a pitch and stuff. But uh, it was my thing. It was music. And that was from the age of maybe what nine or ten years old. It was, you know, well before. It became very clear to me um, that dance floor music. So it was disco or you know whatever reggae and, and stuff like that was appealing to me and it became clear that music was my way to talk to people, to to be someone. So I was doing tapes all the time. At the beginning I had no mixer, so I was doing tapes with, uh, you know, the pose on, on the tape recorder and I was trying to find records which were going from the slower to the fastest. There was nothing to do with the intensity of the music, it was more about the beat and I was kind of cutting it. I knew exactly the time it took from the time I was, you know, posing the, the tape. And then again, you know, putting it back on to trying to do some kind of mega mix and stuff like that. And I was doing a lot of tapes and I was sharing it with all my friends at school. It was my way of being who I was. So, yeah. 
if I got a hold of one of those tapes at the time, what would I, I have, have heard? Oh, you have them yes, still. I, I, I've got, I keep everything. I've always been like this. So I've got my tapes from, you know, the time I was nine or 10. Um, mainly funk music, funk, uh, soul, disco, um, but mainly funk music back then. Then I had phase, you know, after that I discovered new wave and stuff like that. But mainly I always kind of come back to black music. And as a, a white boy living in France, what was it about black music culture from elsewhere that really captured your imagination? I guess when you were living in France uh, back then, it was all about America, you know, uh, before. I mean, we grew up in a country where there's a very strong African roots. So we hear African music from, from being quite kids. Brazilian music is here as well. You know, they come to the charts. I mean, we, we were hearing this music in the charts, um, maybe sometimes a, a bit commercial, but there was some African-flavoured music into what I heard when I was a kid, and Brazilian, and, and all this kind of music. Um, but then there was this big thing about America. So I even, you know, when, when hip-hop arrived and, and um, kind of Miami bass, electro, um, the beginning of rap, and, and all these, you know, the dance you were seeing from America and stuff, it was a big fascination for America. And Either you were listening to rock or you were listening to black music, but America represented black music for me. So it was a fascination for that music. And then the groove as well. It's all about, for me, music is all about the groove. Either it talks to my hips, makes me want to dance, it talks to my head, makes me want to think or cry or, you know, it just, or my heart. But for, for me, music is all about feelings. That's all. That's it. You know, there's no good or bad music. There's just music that talks to you or just doesn't. And it doesn't matter. You know, it can talk to someone else. And black music was the thing that was making me move. That's it. So just before you started to move to the, that, that kind of beat, uh, as it were, how were you getting a hold of these records? Wow, it was it, it was difficult back then. Um, first, it was very expensive because um, you had to go to record shops, which were providing themselves outside of France. So you know you were buying what we used to call imports, which is kind of weird now to say that. And imports were very, very, very expensive. So they were like I don't know, thirty years ago, maybe forty years ago, an import like an album was maybe twenty-five euros or thirty euros just for a vinyl. Um, so it was difficult, but we were buying much less records. But there was few magazines and then, of course, radio show. My thing is I grew up by listening to music and discovering music on the radio. Back then, radio stations were doing their job of playing new music, exciting music. Even some, you know, the shows were very late, but they had no fear of trying to play interesting music. They didn't really care about the amount of people who were listening to the shows. They cared more about the quality and the content, which I think it all changed now. There's not that many stations where, you know, you can have proper, proper content. But radio was the real media for us to um, discover music. Um, every major city has its kind of um, a hero for the radio, like Detroit had the electrifying mojo. Who in France was kind of inspiring you in that regard? Who were you listening to? Because you know, I know you were involved in radio from quite young. Well, too. I started doing radio when I was 14. Basically, um, you know, I, my, 
my all my things with music. So I was buying music all the time. I didn't care about anything else. So I kind of got a hold of, you know, I had a, a group of friends which were interested in music. And, and one of my friends was a bit more intelligent than the other ones. And one day, it was uh, during the explosion of a free radio, what we used to call free radio stations in France, which was after the CB when people were talking to each other in two cars. They kind of built their own transmitter. And my friend did a very basic transmitter. And we were doing a radio show called Radio Teenager in his house every Friday night. And we were doing like a four-hour show playing all sorts of different kinds of music. But then, because I didn't have enough money to buy music, I was actually recording other radio shows. I was editing some of the tracks and then playing those tracks on our radio. You know, um, But there was, back then in the 80s, early 80s, um, the, 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 the FM uh, stations in France uh, became very prolific and a lot of uh, pirate radios happened you know to appear and then they were very specific specific in music um, and then I was just basically listening to uh, shows every night all night when these radio stations would have a particular remit or a style of music that they'd get involved in uh, you say like your love of black music was born of the early dreams of a disco, but how was the radio kind of organised then? Because black music wasn't necessarily um, massively popular on the radio. Was there a distinction at all of what you could listen to? No, there was like more like funk shows and those guys were, you know, um, buying imports and playing, playing the music. You could find the records, and then there was a very strong connection between France and New between Paris and New York. And then you have to understand: in the eighties, there was quite a lot of money. The clubs were doing super well in Paris. Uh, the nightlife was very, very prolific. So you had a lot of people flying over to New York, and there was this DJ called Guy Cuevas, I think, and his guy was um, DJing in a club called Le Palace. And Le Palace was maybe one of the most fashionable and super trendy club in Paris. It was a big gay club. And and the whole nightlife was kind of following, you know, this guy. And he, he had a very strong connection with New York. So each radio station had specific shows. So you could hear, you know, two hours of punk and then two hours of funk and then two hours of ska or reggae. It was all there. All you had to do is switch on your radio station. There was hundreds of radio stations back then. Then two years or three years after that, uh, the regulation, you know, the laws came and then they closed all them down. So what laws affected the radio then, if you could explain to people who aren't French and might not be aware? I don't know. I, I think it was all to do... I'm, I'm not sure about what happened, but I was very young. And I know when we did this radio teenager thing, we had to stop because uh, basically um, the government decided that they were going to allow so many stations on the FM. Um, and then, of course, it was all a matter of money. Um, and then, you know, 90% of all these small radios just disappeared. Because basically there, there was no rules, so everybody was just jumping on top of each other. You know, somebody was creating a radio show and then somebody with a stronger transmitter was coming and said, well, fuck off, you know, and then that's it. I'm going to go over, over your airwaves or airspace. So there was no, no rules. So it was a real mess, but it was really good fun because everybody was doing their thing. A messy fun kind of is a pirate radio. Um, when you mentioned somebody uh, to follow, like you followed DJs New York, who were you following um, close to home that you really admired at that point? I can't remember their names. I remember the name of the show. The show was called Smith & Wesson. Uh, I think it was on Radio Set. But I don't know what these guys are doing now. 
you know, these guys liked music and there was a lot of other people liking music. So anybody could have done it. But I was following their show because music wise, it was it was just wonderful. It was great. They were the only one who were playing like, you know, this new kind of mix mash of, of New York style of electro and stuff like that. It was brilliant. It was the only place where you could hear that music. And I, you know, I was too young to go to clubs. So when did you start going to clubs? Did you sneak into clubs? Or? Yeah, I was very lucky because my, my brother is six years older than me and he took me um, to clubs when I was very young. And we were going, you know, he's gay and he was taking me to all the gay clubs in Paris. And Paris has always been very prolific with gay clubs and the gay scene has always been the scene that was always the first to accept new things you know, for house music. The, the first clubs in Paris that just played house music was gay clubs. And this is where I started. I started in gay clubs in Paris. So when I was 14, you know, the deal was with my brother. I come and work for you. You had a restaurant, so I was just working there for free. But then you take me to clubs at night. So I was going out all the time. And when we were talking about the radio briefly there, uh, different styles of music having their own shows, uh, clubs also kind of had uh, a separation yes. of what kind of nights would have what oh, music. Oh, yes, for sure. Could you kind of elaborate upon that and what the scene in Paris was like at the time? I guess it's the same as now, you know. They were very specific in music. If you if you used to go to the Palace at one point, reggae became massive, so they were playing a lot of reggae and a lot of disco at the same time. Um, the very strictly boy gay clubs were playing a lot of high energy which was like a, a faster version of disco um, then you had clubs like la piscine which were playing only new wave because at the same time you know new wave was becoming very big as well because we have a france is a very big nation for rock and roll for rock and pop and rock and stuff like that and punk so we had tons of clubs which were fighting against the the gay stuff which was more the black music you know like funk and soul and disco so they were just playing a lot of rock and roll and you could not hear black music in there it was very very close-minded in a way but the good thing was i was going everywhere because i was interested in music and I'm sure that would have informed your style of mixing and the selections that you were playing. Like, how did you draw these, like, musical maps in your mind, as it were, early on? I don't know. For me, it's, it's all to do with pleasure. M music should be pleasure. So there's no good, or, again, there's no good or bad music. So there's great stuff in punk, there's great stuff in, in house music or in techno, but there's a lot of shit as well in everywhere. It's true. You know, it's, not everything is good. And... I'm, I'm just looking for what satisfies me. So it's nice to go to different places. I hate eating the same stuff. I mean, you don't eat chicken every day, right? So you don't only listen to house or techno. At one point you will get bored. So you need to go and listen to hip hop or something different, you know? And there's good things everywhere. So for me, it's just, uh, it's, it's all to do with pleasure. That's it. So when did you start to DJ in clubs in Paris? When did you get that big first shot? I did my first proper DJ thing in Manchester. I actually moved. Um, basically, you have to understand when I was 18, DJs were not existing. There was few DJs, but they were not traveling. It was not like it's now. You know, it's not, it's not at all like it's what's happening now. Basically, you were a DJ, you were playing in a club five nights a week. You were starting at 11, finishing at seven in the morning. You were doing the whole night. You know, there was no guest spot or whatever, which is 
the way I learned how to play music. This is why I usually play five or six hours because I like doing the whole night. I found that interesting. So basically, I moved from France to England when I was 18. I was not. I was listening to music. Music was was my life, but my job was not that. I was working in catering. I was a waiter. So if you want to be successful in France, in waiting on, you need to speak English. So I went to move in London. I got a job for two years, and then I was going out every night. Of course, I was spending all my money on records, and then I got a very good job in Manchester. So I moved up north again. I was giving tapes to everyone because that was my dream. And then one day, I met the right guy at the right time and gave him gave him the right tape. Who was the right guy? The guy was cool. He was um, the light jockey of the Hacienda and he became a friend. And then, you know, I kept giving him tapes. And then one day he rang me and he said, listen, there's this new party we want to do on Wednesday at Hacienda. They're looking for this new DJ. And I gave the tape to the boss and he thought it was kind of interesting. Would you like to meet him? So I went to meet this guy. Uh, and he said to me, all right, I heard your tape, sounded okay. And then we want to do this new night, attracting, you know, a gay crowd and a mixed crowd, like a fashion crowd and stuff like that. House music was not even there yet. Um, and he said to me, could you do me another tape? It's about 10 of you, you know, and I'm asking the same to everyone and you need to convince me. And I was like, fuck, I don't even have proper record player in my place. So I went back home and I think it took me three or four days I just worked 24 hours a day to get this tape right. So I was doing all, again, I was working with the speed of each record. You know, I did a mix like that, trying to, to speed up like this with my finger. And then, of course, I did it a hundred times and then I gave him the tape and then I knew I was going to get it because the tape was good. Now, I think the tape was good. I think the tape was quite good. And I kind of knew that, you know, I, I knew the music he liked. So, of course, by playing, you know, some... Um, New York classics and a bit of hip hop and a bit of whatever I did on that tape. I don't have a copy of that tape, but um, I kind of knew I was going to get it because I always knew some way, somehow I was going to get there one day. You know, since I'm very young, I didn't know I wanted to be a DJ when I was eight or 10. I just knew I wanted to do something with music to express myself. So the first thing I thought about when I was a kid was radio. I want to be a radio DJ because this is what you know this is where i discover music and then from then on i discovered the turntable and in a mixer and in a club nightlife which i thought was absolutely wonderful i wanted to spend my life there so i started doing tapes and then you know sharing tapes so i then i i decided i wanted to be a dj but it took me a few years to understand that and then um, i knew that one day i was going to get there so if, if if it wasn't at a hacienda i would have done it somewhere else for sure well, it's probably a good thing it was at the Hacienda because it was, it was all right. It helped it was, me. Yeah, it was not bad. <laughs> it kind um, of helped me, yes. Hacienda, oh. for those who don't know, was a very, very big club in Manchester, which was owned by um, some of the guys from New Order. Um, very, very famous club, amazing, which was not very successful for quite a long time. Um, and then one day, this guy called Paul Cons, which is the guy I met, uh, decided to throw different parties. And he was the clever man who just made Hacienda. When you walked into the Hacienda for the first time, the general perception of the Hacienda is a smiley-faced raver with the baggy clothes. But the Hacienda didn't I was really there before. start like I, that. I, no, of course not. Hacienda was like more a rock club than anything. I mean, you had a guy called Dean and he was playing a lot of Northern Soul. Because you have to understand when you live in Manchester, there's a very strong history with Northern Soul. 
you know, the, the history keeps repeating itself. Northern, you know, rave, the story of rave is exactly the same as Northern Soul. It's just guys, you know, traveling for hours to go and dance for 24 hours in, in some kind of warehouse. Um, so this, this is what happened in the 60s uh, with Northern Soul. So there's a very strong um, influence of that music still in, you know, in the walls of Manchester, it's there. So, of course, Dean was playing a lot of that. And then Friday night, you had Mike Pickering with another guy. They were playing a mixture between electro um, and then the beginning of house. And then uh, I think Thursday night was Temperance Club and that was only strictly rock. Because, of course, Manchester, you know, the amount of pop rock bands from there... Um, and it's still there. So, so they had um, they had lots of different nights. When you left uh, Paris to come to Manchester, mm. what kind of a, a culture shock did you get with the clubbing? Because if the Parisian scene had its black music nights, its rock nights that people didn't really mix, did you see that culture change in the hacienda? It's not Hacienda, it's an English thing. In England, you can do what the fuck you want. Nobody's looking at you and judges you. You know, it's very free, it's very easy. This is the way I saw it. I mean, I went to live in London for about two years before I went to Manchester and it was complete freedom. I mean, first of all, I, you know, I actually left my parents to move to England. I was actually living in a small suburban town in France, which was boring as hell. And then I went to London and I was going out every night. And then everybody, all colors, all, all you know, whatever the way they were dressing and whoever they, they were, were mixing together in clubs. It was wonderful. And I was going to clubs that was playing funk um, and reggae and then rockabilly. They were playing everything and everybody was there. You had some psychobillies mixed with funk people and nobody cared, you know, everybody was just dancing under the same roof. That was a real shock. That was different because you couldn't have this here. I mean, I remember when I grew up, when I was going to school, either you were going to be, either you were a disco boy or you were uh, like some guy who was listening to ACDC, so you couldn't listen to black music because, you know, it was hell. Or you were into ska, but nobody was mixing everything. So you go to England and then in the same shop, you can buy black music, white music, whatever, you know, just as long as it's good, just do it. That was great. That was great. And the whole thing with, same, when we did the Hacienda, I was playing as much hip-hop than house, than I was playing rock music. You know, you can play New Order, Public Enemy, and then play Marshall Jefferson after that. No problem. You started your own night, as you mentioned, the Wednesday nights at the Hacienda. It was mm. called Zumbar, and that was late 1987, if yes. I'm correct. Yes. Um, you keep um, bringing up, it was the very start of House. It was yeah. the beginning of Acid House. Uh, how... Did you see the room change once House really started to move in? And uh, I'll ask that politely because I know what the punters might have been like. Well, <laughs> basically House music at the, at the beginning was in Manchester. I'm only talking for what I saw in Manchester. I'm not talking about what happened everywhere else. The very first people that started House music in Manchester was Mike Pickering with his Friday Night. Um, they very quickly went from, you know, playing Mantronics and playing some go-go music like Trouble Funk and stuff like that. And they started to play house music. And then when they saw that house was doing something to the crowd, um, they kind of changed quite quickly to only play house music. But it was a black thing. And it was, it, it was a dance thing. So, you know, the way we all say, Jack, build a house. People were coming and they were jacking. Jacking was a serious fucking business, right? 
So you knew you had to know what to do. You had to know your moves. And first, if you were white, it was kind of difficult already to get into these circles. But those guys were dancing. It was like a proper, serious, serious dance club, you know? To possibly elaborate on what jacking is for those who, who might be too young to be familiar, perhaps. Uh, could you explain what jacking is and what it, its relationship? I don't with know who music? Jack was. I, th I think it's no, but I, I think it's coming from a from a kid's um, story, isn't it? The house that sure. Jack built. Is there anybody in the room who knows that? Mike, are you here? <laughs> is that it? <laughs> Do you know who Jack is? It's just a style of dancing. They just call it jacking. And then people start saying the house. I think they were playing with a because I think it's a kid's story. It was yeah, and then they were playing with the word house and and Jack, and then you have to understand a lot of the the first records. Um, you know, there was the word Jack all the time, and Jack was the guy who invented house music, which is not sure who really invented it, but whatever. They said it was Jack, and then the dance was a very very specific thing, you know, and. That's the first thing I saw with house music. And then straight away, you had a DJ in England, I think it was called Stu Allen, which was, you know, he played a lot of house in his show. He was playing a lot of hip hop first, and then he, you know, started to play house. And then house arrived from Chicago. But then when you wanted a house record, I mean, I remember when I discovered Farley Jack Master Fong. That's the first house record I ever heard in a club. It was at Hacienda. I heard this track, and it was kind of a a thump in my face. You know, you get to a club, you kind of know the music they play, and then the, the DJ, Mike Pickering, stops the music and plays this thing which comes out of nowhere, which has such a strong beat. It kind of kicks you in the face. So what I did is I ran straight up, you know, straight up there, and then I banged on the door, and, and Mike Pickering opened the door, and I said, what the fuck is this? He was like, you know, laughing and saying, I'm not telling you, and then closed the door. But whatever, I found out where this record was. It took me a month and a half to get a copy. I was living like half an hour away from Manchester, and every time I was calling this record shop called Spinning and say, do you have a copy of Farley? Yeah, we got three, but be fast. So I was just you know, jumping in my car, half an hour drive, you get there, gone, no more. And it took me a long time to get these records. So you have to understand, it was hard to get these records. There was not that many copies. Same, when I heard the first time I heard Derek May, Rhythm is Rhythm, it took me months to get a copy of Rhythm is Rhythm. You know, we were not flooded with this music. Because it was kind of a, it was a small thing back then. And then um, within six months, it went from um, a black crowd, which were dancing, to a rave crowd, which was nearly strictly white, which were taking tons of drugs because house music in England, acid house, arrives at the same time as a new drug. And then everybody takes this and the whole thing changes completely, completely. It was like such a big wave. And in six months, all the clubs were playing house, all the raves were playing house. And then everybody was just, just dived in it. It was crazy. It was a real mad time because we really saw the change in six months where it was kind of a specific thing where, you know, there was no more dancing. It was all about just jumping in here and going crazy. Uh, I appreciate uh, the footnote from Mike Banks. That's, that's pretty great. I enjoyed that. Um, uh, when actually, when you're speaking about the competitiveness of trying to get hold of these records. Would you think that was a hangover of the Northern Soul scene where they would scratch off, you know, the label information? No, house music was about sharing. It was not about... It was very different from Northern Soul because I know Northern Soul, these guys, it was even harder for them to go and get the records and I know they were hiding 
hiding all the labels and stuff. There's a great movie, I don't know if you guys saw it, but if you haven't, you need to see this film called Northern Soul, which is really, really interesting. It's called Northern Soul. It's a fiction, but it's really brilliant. came out last year in England. Something to see. But um, house music was all about sharing. It was not, you know, keeping your information for you. I mean, some DJs did it, but it was very much about, you know, I like this, we, we discovering this all together. It was not about an old music, it was something fresh. Northern Soul was digging old records. House music was the thing of the moment because we were 20, it was made by 20 years old guys in Chicago or in Detroit. And everybody was living the same thing together. We were writing the book back then. We were writing the story. So it, 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 it belonged to us. It belonged to, you know, it was our generation. It was our thing. So there was no, no real competition. I didn't see the competition. We were all jumping on the same train and on the same train and going, you know, where the fuck we're we going? I don't know, but we're going straight forward. That's for sure. Speaking of, um, of going straight forward, uh, you had a bit of a following yourself, but maybe not in um, a classic DJ sense. Didn't you used to drive people from one country to another? <laughs> Could you elaborate upon just how intense oh, no. those times were without in incriminating okay. yourself too much? Okay, I, d I did a, a year in Manchester and then I had to go back to France because um, back then the army was compulsory, so I had to come back here. And I did one year in France between 88 and 89, and I missed the real explosion of the rave culture. I missed the first summer of love. So when I finished the army in summer 89, of course I went straight back to England, and then I discovered something which didn't belong to me anymore. Because I was there just at the beginning. And I left Hacienda, I remember so well, the last party I did at Hacienda. Something was changing, we knew it. And even Paul, the guy who got me the job there, I remember him going to, coming to the DJ booth and he said to me, I think, Laurent, you're going to miss something very strong because I think something is, is about to happen. And it's true, I left and within two months, the whole thing just went fucking crazy. And I didn't see any of that. I heard about it, of course, because all my friends were still in Manchester, but I didn't see any of that. So when I went back one year after, I felt, shit, I missed the train. I missed the train because I was not there at the time. It really exploded. And in France, nothing had, had happened at all. So I thought maybe it's wiser for me to go back to France and do it there. You know, do, you know, represent that music over here because there wasn't that many things here. There was no clubs playing this music or anything. The actual, the only place that was playing that music, there was the palace and it was an English, an English promoter which used to come every Tuesday to the palace to do a party and then there was the Rex Club um, where every Friday they were doing a party there of, with house music, but that was it. So I decided to come back here. So I came back here like at late 1989, sorry. And this is when I started traveling all the time from France to England. So basically I was playing in a party on Wednesday here and then by six or seven o'clock in the morning, I used to get on the mic. There was only 10 people on the dance floor left. And I used to say, all right, I've got a car. I've got full space. If you guys are ready, jump on my car. We go to England. We go to Rave. Tonight we're in Brighton. Tomorrow we're in London. And then we come back on Sunday. And I did this for about four or five years. We were not sleeping whatsoever and just jumping on the car and then driving to England. So, yeah, I, sh I shared all these moments with people I never met before. I never saw after that. No shower, no hotel, no food, whatever. Crisps and water, and then that's it, we go. We were raving. It was fun. It was good fun. <laughs> 
And um, and once you once you did these sorry once you did those kind of um, pit stops for partying, you weren't just going to do an hour or two just to um, just to turn up. These were long like marathon DJ sets that you were investing from early on. It's, it's funny how people find it weird when when you ask as a DJ to play a long set. Yeah, I found it very strange that today people fight to only do two hours. You can't do fuck all in two hours. You, you play, what, 20 tracks? 18 tracks? There's nothing. There's so much good music to be played. And sometimes, um, you know, when, when you get to the position where I am now, um, I don't DJ that much. And then maybe sometimes people have been you know, waiting to see me for quite a while. And, and I think it would, it would be very uh, disrespecting for me to go there and just do an hour and a half set because I want to, I want to give them as much as I can. Because I like telling stories, I like playing records, and there's so much music. I mean, I, I always have so much more than what I can play, even if I do a five-hour set. Um, and I'm coming from the time where I used to open clubs and I used to close it. And for me, playing, playing as a DJ is not about getting the crowd and drive them crazy. It's fun to do that. But what I love is getting club when it's empty. I love opening up a place when there's no one, and then people come down they have a drink and then you know you can play some really deep stuff or really slow music i mean I, i never understood a dj that comes to an empty place and start 128 i'm thinking come on man i mean you know this is this is stupid it's true you get to an empty place and bang 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 already it's like come on wake up you know um, you need to take your time. And for me, a DJ set is a ride and, and you can't always be up there. You need to go up and down. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a meal. You know, it's true. It's, I don't know, it's all about feeling and, and seeing people who's in front of you. And if you have no one, well, just greet them slowly. And the lights should be the same. I always talk a lot with the guy, the lights, you know, I'm like, don't flash your thing now. Just take time. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be over attacked or whatever. Um, so I like playing very long sets because it, it allows me to have a strong relationship with the crowd. It allows me to play music that maybe I wouldn't play for sure if I had a two hour set. Um, for me, DJing is all about surprising people. And within an hour and a half, you can't really do that. I think you need time. You need time. And it's nice to take people on a journey. They might like you or not, but at the end of the day, they got a good slice of it. When you're going on these journeys um, on the dance floor, back and forth from France and England, um, you're obviously observing uh, electronic music explode, still in an underground context, but in two very different countries with different attitudes and different crowds oh, yeah. and different tastes. Um, once you get to the late 80s, Acid House has exploded. Um, also, electronic music is really starting to come into pop and pop and rock music in the UK um, with things like Andrew Weatherall remixing a, a Primal Scream and um, all that sort of thing. How did you observe electronic music move into the pop realm? Because I think it's maybe something we take for granted as a norm now. Well, you know, um, very quickly, whatever style of music you want to talk about, pop music or the people that are more about... <laughs> the money than the content or the, you know, the, the real heart in music. Um, you've always got people that will take whatever is on the ground or whatever is interesting and make it more like a, on, on a more commercial base. So very, very quickly um, in England, and England is great for that because, you know, it's very different than France. 
Um, we don't have... If you take somebody like David Guetta, um, he's not playing that much in France. He's playing much more abroad. And we don't have huge raves here like Cream or places like that where you have super commercial EDM DJs and stuff like that. Over here, it's never really happened. Where in England, music has been a business for a lot of time. So it's, it's very, very different in England than in France. But um, commercial is, it's, you know, commercial, well, pop music is always taking whatever is interesting and made it, you know, more commercial. But I think it's a normal thing. It, it, it was bound to happen to house music, but, but it happened straight away, very quickly. If you take Snap, I've Got the Power, that was a, you know, it, it's a great track. But again, it was a, a more commercial side of electronic music. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. What did you observe of that change that you did find interesting? Like you mentioned Snap. Was there anything else that caught your imagination? Well, I mean, it depends what we call commercial. But I must say, if you were living in Manchester, it's very grim up there. And, you know, um, they, they became, uh, they absolutely love piano house music. Okay, so if you take something like uh, uh, Ride on Time by Black Box, uh, I remember this tune was so big in Manchester. I mean, if, if you were playing this in any race, any, anywhere, even in a super underground place, people were getting so fucking mental. It was beautiful. I mean, the power, the energy. No, it's true. It was beautiful. And I must say, you know, I brought this record back here and played it in Paris. And I got absolutely slaughtered here by playing this record. Of course. It was a different kind of room and I didn't have a thousand people completely off their heads on knees waiting for Piano House, you know. In Manchester, it's true that they had, the, they had a history with this. They didn't have it here. You were, you were better playing Loetta Holloway, the original track. At least the original version did quite well here. But Black Box, it was seen as like the record from the devil. You couldn't play it here. Too commercial. So it depends, again, it depends where you're playing things. So, when you're talking about E, um, what comes after E? F. What does F stand for? Well, it was a label that I did. Um, I think we started in 92 or something. Basically, what happened um, when house music became kind of popular in France, um, there's one guy I met a long time ago called Eric Morand. And Eric um, wanted to, for the first time in France, he wanted to... Um, sign French artists and the idea was to focus on selling this music outside of France and none of the record shops or none of the record companies in France were doing that they were selling they were signing artists to actually sell music in France um, the first one which did that was Serone Serone was very clever because <laughs> he had a, a record shop and then he, he made his music and his music was not doing anything and then one day he was actually buying imports for his shop from New York. One day he got a whole lot of, of imports, took 20 records out, put 20 records of his own in the box, closed the box, rang the company in America and said, by the way, you sent me too much of, you know, there's too many of this. The, the, the actual order was wrong. I send you the box back. So he sends the box back, the, the box back to America. These guys open these things. What the fuck is this record? So they play it. They think it's good. And then straight away, this record becomes a hit in America. Very clever. But that is very clever. It's very clever. But he's the first one who did it. But anyway, no record company was doing that. So Eric said to me, we're going to approach the FNAC shop, which is a, like a um, retailer for CDs and, and, and vinyl. And then they sell a lot of stuff as well. And um, 
back then FNAC was selling a lot of records, but they, they didn't have a record company. So we went to sign as a label in FNAC before F Communication. And then I met Eric, and then I was the first artist that he signed. He kind of forced me to make music, pushed me. Eric pushed me to do a lot of things. He was always there. He's, he's still working with me. But we did FNAC for two years, which was the, the, the first step before F Communication. And then some problem happened in FNAC, and then we had to leave. And basically what happened, we wanted to set a new record, a new record label. And we were in England, we were in a big rave in England, and we were just watching it from the first floor, and there was a lot of guys completely off their heads on the dance floor, and you know, with all the t-shirts, with a knee, and they didn't look too good. You know, it, it was a bit too much. I think you had one too much, mate. And it was, you know, it was not a very, ni a very nice sight. And for me, drugs has never been the thing. It's always been about music. And it was the representation of exactly what I didn't where I didn't want to go. So watching this guy and then Eric said to me, well, there you go. We, we've, we've, got our, we've got the name for the label. Look at this guy with his E after E comes F, after the, after the drugs come back the music. And I'm like, yeah, okay, let's go. So we started F Communication, which was a label which, where we focused on French artists and we wanted to sell music outside of France. And how would you go about that as an independent label in France at the time, selling instrumental electronic music? Um, FNAC was harder because, you know, it was two years before. But you have to understand, we kind of did a, a deal with the guys from Pias. Played Against Sam is a big in, indie uh, distributor. Basically, we said to them, um, we want to be distributed by you, but you are not interfering with the music. The music is our thing. It's me and Eric. Um, and, the th and the way we were working, Eric was at the office every day and I was raving every night everywhere. So I was traveling the world, giving records. And then on Monday, of course, there was somebody at the office. So FNAC, uh, FCOM did very well, very, very quickly. And this is where we signed um, Saint-Germain, you know, Ludovic Navarre. And then we had uh, Scanex and then all sorts of different, different kinds of artists, which did quite well. But the idea was really to sell music outside of France because we were still not selling anything in France. So we wanted to have like a hit somewhere, you know, outside, which we did with a, a track by a guy called Lunatic Asylum, which became like number one in Germany, which was massive. And then I did Wake Up. And after that, it basically came back like a boomerang, you know, and then in France, people thought, wow, these guys can do it. Well, why not us? So they started to make music. And then straight after that, you had people like the Daft Punk who came, who kind of did the second, you know, it was the second chapter to the French, to the French happening in music. When Daft Punk came, when they did like a, when they signed on Soma, and then after that, they did like a, a big hit. All the kids in France just went, well, if they can do it, we can too. And then this is when they really started to go in the studio. And this is when it all happened in France. I've heard you mention before that you feel that the prevailing French attitude to success within any kind of created field is kind of suspicious. Success, success is yeah. super suspicious in France. Do you, think that's, do you think that's partly why uh, things take a long time to have happened then and then maybe outside success was like a validation of what you were doing? I don't know. First, we were dealing with black music, which was not the most popular thing. Um, we were not focusing on France. We were not focusing on me, myself, and I. It was, it was, you know, it was a different kind of policy for them. It was, it was very strange for them to understand. And then, of course, it was instrumental music. 
So I remember the first record I did, um, the very, very first single, Eric went to see, uh, I think he was, he's called de Emmanuel de Burtel, which is the guy that I've got, um, is he called Virgin or something? I don't know what he's doing. Il a quel label? C'est ça, c'est Virgin, hein? Um, and then he, you know, he listened to it and went, you know, this sounds like Jean-Michel Jarre, I'm not interested. Uh, for him, it was all kind of music. It was kind of old. Because during the disco days, we had quite a lot of French producers which made uh, synthetic dance music, synthetic disco music, bands like Space and stuff like that, which was quite big here. So for them, it was just something which sounded a bit old, which is very strange. What did sound new, though, was a sound called the French Touch, which is part, which is partly what um, Daft Punk was involved in. Mm. As someone who's observed electronic music for, for many years before that big wave of the French Touched happened. What did you think of it at the time and did you think it had a positive impact on the it's, perception of electronic it's music? It's very strange to call it French Touch because these guys were only focusing on Chicago. If you talk to Thomas or all these guys from the French Touch, the music they absolutely love was the music from the ghetto from Chicago. So they were kind of taking uh, disco loops and they were, they were you know, um, copying really well um, great records from Chicago. So their music was already American, which is kind of a weird, weird thing to call it French Touch. But I think uh, it was more like a journalist word they used to market and to put something on, you know somewhere okay it's coming from france french touch and then at one point everybody was french touch whatever record was coming out of france was selling a little bit somewhere else it was french touch it didn't mean very much to me the french touch thing you know it was definitely a journalist that coined it it was someone from the for melody sure, maker for sure for sure so i don't like marketing music too much so you know i i like a lot of these records for for me the house me is house music Household techno. I um that was uh, the video for your track flashback, mm. but it was there's actually a lot to say about that yes. video. But yes. one of the main things it has a very particular sense of humour, and it was directed by someone quite special as well. Okay, uh, of course, it's very stupid because it's directed by Mr. Wazo, uh, Quentin Dupieux. Uh, you have to understand, I was living just across that garage because we shot it in his father's garage, and every day the way I I met him. I was going out of my flats every day and then um, his father is like kind of a funny man. You know, when you meet the father, you understand where the son is coming from. Yes. His father was always like with his cigarette going, you're going to buy me a fucking car or what? Every day. <laughs> and then one day I start talking to this guy and he says, oh, my son makes video. I'm like, well, tell him to drop some VHS tapes, you know, tapes, you know, I'd love to, to see his work. And then... Um, Quinton did, he, he came to my house and, and dropped some tapes and then I saw the most amazing you know, video maker of short films, which was completely wacky, super crazy. Um, so I go and see the father and say, well, I'd like to meet your son and it'd be nice to do something together. So we did two videos together. We did a like a 13 minute film for um, around crispy bacon with a, some, some kind of a weird short film called Nightmare Sandwich. And inside that, you have like a short film and two videos where you have um, crispy bacon. And this is the second video we did in his father's place. 
and why um, we talk French at the beginning and cut the thing in the middle and talk French at the end. You have to understand in France, there's a percentage of uh, French words you can put in your music to be considered as French music. So I actually, I live in France. I pay my tax in France, but my music, because it's in instrumental, is considered as, a, as a, not European, but worldwide music. It's not, it's not French. So I'm not a French artist. So to find a way, especially when you talk English uh, in, you know, in, in a thing, if you want to be played in French TV, you have to have a higher percentage of French talking than English. So because the song was in English, I had to find ways to talk at the beginning, cut it in the middle, speak French in the middle, and then speak French at the end to have a higher quote, you know, higher percentage of French talking to be able to be played on TV. So the actual guy in the middle coming and, you know, being a bit of a funny guy saying, oh, you can't, you can't talk, you know, English if you're French. We did it because we just wanted to be played on TV. Because otherwise we would be completely, um, you know, swept out. And it's also quite sarcastic about the idea of, of the French media and perception of that. It is. And as well, this is a time where techno music was very stuck with the image of fractal and, you know, all this kind of imagery, which was kind of techno and... I always want to do things in a bit of a different way. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in two short films. I, I mean, I like, I like cinema a lot. And we thought with Quentin, you know, how, how can we do something different? And, and you know, does it make it look like a techno video? Because we want to maybe appeal to different people. And we, we just want to do something differently. And then he came with this scenario. And I said, are you sure you want me to, like, eat food and, you know, um, do this stuff? And he said, yeah, yeah, it's going to be very funny. And we did it. And we, we just laughed so much. We thought it was really funny when we shot it. I said, yeah, just go for it. And yes, we wanted to be a bit satirical about what was happening in the media back then. And what was your perception of what was happening with techno music at the time? Because your own particular vision for your music is obviously personal. But what were you observing that you weren't so happy with? Well, back then, rave became another way to make money. And, and, and money, you know, this is when the DJ started to really structure themselves which is a good thing, you know, you got to understand at the beginning, when we didn't have manager, I got to some pretty awkward situation traveling the world without, you know, having a ticket to fly back home or, um, or a bedroom booked. I mean, I actually found myself on my own with my sitting on my record box at four o'clock in the morning outside a club in New York, not having a, a place to sleep or a ticket to go home because I wanted to go to New York so much. And the actual promoter just completely fucked me up. Uh, I had this a lot at the beginning. I, ha I had some weird ones. So this is, I think this is back in 96, or I can't remember. Oh, 97. This is where it's kind of structuring itself. And, you know, you have the agents coming and then we're doing contracts to start traveling and it's all becoming politically quite correct. But then again, I feel like it's making a lot of money and I've never been into the money side of it. I don't like that. For me, you have to talk to me about music. You know, then maybe we'll talk about something else. But music is the first thing I want to talk about. And it, it was a time where a lot of people were making a fuck of a lot of money out of the word techno, you know. Um, and it was becoming a bit, a bit nasty. It was a bit of a funny time, you know, in the techno world. So I didn't like that. And I just wanted to go somewhere else to do different things. And actually, after this album, I started to make very different albums. I kind of left techno. Not techno but I kind of left dance floor music for quite a while to start working with um, 
contemporary choreographers and you know doing things for films and stuff like that because I always want to um I want to create things I don't want to repeat myself and I felt like I was kind of repeating myself by doing you know back then so I just wanted to go and explore different things I like exploring um this is a really interesting clip of a performance uh, for a, a few reasons one. it was um it was a year after the flashback video mm. so quite the visual contrast uh, could not be more different from the clubs that you've played in over the years. and That was not a club. <laughs> that was not a club. Um, but perhaps most pertinently to the conversation that we've had so far is that that was basically the first time that that style of live electronic music was ever performed in France. Well, okay. This is L'Olympia, which is a very famous old-school uh, concert hall in Paris. Uh, this was for the Victoire de la Musique, which is, um, I don't know how, what's the equivalent outside of France, but it's, uh, it's the nomination for all the artists from French songs to whatever kind of music. Um, and it was the very first year for these kind of awards. There was an electronic music um, thing, you know, there was a category of electronic music. Uh, there was five nominees. We all set up our gear backstage. We didn't know who won. And we were all ready to actually go on stage and play. And I didn't know I won it. So I play in front of an audience, which is only the music industry of France, which is more like the pop, the rock, the, the songs, the classical music. And I'm on, the, I'm on my own. Uh, playing this kind of music and back then I mean I remember I was super stressed because it was a time where um, there's been a lot of problems in France with rave music first they thought it was gay music and then we became all drug addicts you know for the press basically all the raves were getting banned closed we couldn't do anything we couldn't do any events at all and this is the first time I actually go on TV and I have the the the, the um, how do you call it the le ministre de merde c'était quoi c'était la, la ministre de quoi oui de la culture voilà. culture the culture minister was in front of me and this is the first time I can actually speak to her so I'm looking at her and you know I win this award and I took the award and I say well you know this award it's not for me I think it's I want this to be for all the French you know the techno scene and I'm glad I'm I'm getting something today but um, you know, I would like you to stop, you know, putting so much pressure on us. It'd be nice if we could actually make parties and do stuff and move on. And, you know, if you could leave us alone. So if this trophy is for uh, the future in techno music, thank you very much. And then I went to actually play this track, which was not even on the album, which I won for. And we did Acid Eiffel. It was very strange because as you can see, everybody's sitting down looking at us thinking, what the fuck is he doing here? And you got to understand as well, when we, when we went the day before to rehearse, we arrive in that place which is full of history with French singing songs, you know, Edith Piaf and everybody played there. The drummer with me is the son of um, Sidney Bechette, the famous uh, jazz player. And we, we get to this place to actually do, um, you know, rehearsal and everybody works in the place are greeting us like, what the fuck are you coming here with your shit music? You are not going to perform on this stage, are you? And this is the way we get greeted in a place. So we get somewhere and everybody's like pushing us, you know, like we are the devils. So it was very, very strange. It was really hard. It was a very, very hard day. And we actually, you know, I did this song. And luckily I did it because six months after I actually 
did uh, a live show in that room. So it, you know, it meant a lot for us to actually have a two minutes or five minutes slot on TV, you know, on Saturday night prime time on this thing. And, you know, I did my, I did my thing and then yes, things uh, went a little bit easier afterwards. So it helped us. It helped the whole techno scene. It did. It has gotten easier for you over the years, but I'm guessing that over the past near, what, 15 years since that, the the live performative element of your music with um, the musicians, mm. it's been something of a revolving door of, of trial and error and trying to find people that fit. Could you elaborate upon for the building me, a show like that? For me, I approach live more like a jazz musician than a techno musician. Um, the techno side of my work would be me on my own in my studio. If I had to just come with my computer and plug it and, you know, look like I'm sending emails from stage, I don't find that very interesting. So from, from day one that I decided that I was going to defend my music live on stage, I decided to go with musicians. So this was my very first band and this is a long time ago. Um, after that, I started to have um, keyboard players and then sax players. And then, you know, I, I even went up to have a 10-piece band. And I was approaching live more like me being a, a conductor. So I had uh, a lot of different elements which I could loop. My tracks were not absolutely not built. It was just, it's just loops. And I just, you know, I could play a track for three minutes as long as 25 minutes. And I was directing all my musician, you know, from stage. So we, we kind of knew... Um, um, the the chorus, no, not the chorus, the the, um, the themes. But then outside of the themes, I was letting each of my musicians to have space and to be able to improvise. Because when I when I'm a punter, when I go and see a show, I hate watching the same thing that you know everybody watched the day before and even the day before. For me, that's really boring. For me, if you go on stage, it's like DJing. You need to perform and you need to change every night something something needs to happen. And then sometimes it doesn't, which is the risk, that's fine. But when it's magical, it's super magical. And I had amazing shows as much as I had a lot of really bad ones. But my way of building a live show was more like a jazz guy. So, you know, um, we didn't really rehearse too much. We were rehearsing on stage, we were working on stage. So I was just like, you know, giving signs to everybody. I was just uh, bringing all sorts of instruments and then my guys are playing with me. It's like a band. I always saw it like a band thing. And it's it's really not difficult to see the link between techno and jazz music. Uh, what of that relationship did you pull into putting a live performance together? For me, jazz has always been about freedom and, you know, um, do your thing. No rules. It be, the rules comes after. Uh, but the beginning of jazz was um, a freedom of expression. And then, it, you know, and then it has as well this, all this thing about space and the other different world. Mike can talk to you about that. He knows very much about that. But um, a lot of the great jazz musicians were very obsessed with the other world. Uh, you know, something that we don't know. It might be better. So we like to dream about this. But for me, jazz has always been an expression of a futuristic thing, you know, futuristic way of making music. Um, and this is where I, techno is exactly the same for me. For me, techno is not about the past, it's always about the future. Where I think now, unfortunately, because this music has been here for such a long time, I see quite a lot of people which are looking a lot more into the past than the future. And it's a shame. This is, this, for me, this is, has been the big change in the techno world. I found a lot of people now looking very much into the past.
where I think they should look forward. But, you know, this is only me saying that. Well, we're talking to you. That's important. But I'm the looking past. Forward, uh, I'm the you past. are the past. <laughs> um, looking forward then, uh, I know that you have chronicled uh, your own your own life in music and the, the life of the culture, the music that you've lived in with your own book. And now that's been also turned into a film. Well, Could you develop upon that? Okay. Well, I've done a lot of different things because, I, as I was saying before, I don't like repeating myself. So besides the fact of making music, um, running a label, DJing, uh, I've been running like some kind of a radio station for the last 10 or 12 years, which is called PBB, where, you know, I just put all the music I like. So at least I can use my record collection for something useful. Um, and then, you know, I work with con contemporary choreographers and stuff. And then I wrote this book back in 2003 called Electroshock. And then we did a new chapter um, two years ago. Uh, so now the book is like 250 pages, like a big book talking about the last 25 years of electronic music. Um, and that book has now just been translated to English. So it just came out in England. Um, and then now I'm working on a film, but the film is it's not the film of the book. It's basically, we signed the book to make a film, but then very quickly I said to the producer, I don't want to do, um, um, how do you call it, a documentary. I'm not interested because I've done that before. You know, I wrote, I wrote the book. I don't want to redo the same story over again. So I wanted to do a fiction. So I started to work and, and write a fiction about someone who's extremely obsessed with music, kind of looks like me, um, very obsessed with music. And I wanted to go a little bit deeper into what those obsession, you know, where it can take you. It can kind of put you aside as well as you can meet people. You know, when I was a kid, I was sharing music with everybody. But sometimes I'm asking myself, um, haven't I lost some friends or haven't I, you know, maybe put too much time into my passion and have I, have I left people on the side? Is, did that passion push me away from, from some people? So um, I'm working on this. I'm working on this scenario. The scenario is finished and now we're looking for, for finance to actually uh, shoot the movie, but it looks like we're going to shoot next summer. But it's not finished, so, you know, I can't say it's done yet. I hope we're going to do it. It's my next project. There's always a next project. Yeah, always, always. You, you always need to uh, um, get out of your comfortable zone. I hate being too much into my comfort zone, so I always try to do different things. Um, maybe sometimes I'm making wrong decisions, but at least I'm trying. So you've been a DJ, a producer, um, involved in, in so many performative elements of it, but dance music always likes to position itself kind of of the moment but you've done quite a lot of work to chronicle it and now that you're going to do this film is there anything you've observed that is kind of a universal of your experience within all these different worlds of music i don't know it's a tricky question i don't know what's you what's i don't i don't know i don't know how to answer that well it's the only one you've not been able to answer i think that's pretty great no i can't answer that what's universal would be the love for music. It's, you know, it's just music speaks for itself. That's it. That's, that's for me, that's what's universal. You know, as simple as this. That's it's all to do with that. <laughs> it's all to do with the heart. Well, that's a simple note to end on, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, that was great. Um, could everyone please help me give a hand to Laurent Garnier? Merci. Merci beaucoup.
Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.